Well, amen. Aren't you glad your sins are in the depths of the sea? I love that little saying. They always say, your sins are buried in the depths of the sea, and he's placed a no fishing sign there. I like that, you know. Amen. Amos, chapter 7. Amos. Yeah, I just messed up some of you, didn't I? I'm telling you, you got to start skimming or go to the front of the Bible and start looking. Amos. You'll run right by it if you're not careful. He's one of those minor prophets. And uh, really, you know, when we start talking about major, minor prophets, we're not talking about those that contributed more or less than others, with the exception of the amount of prophecy. For instance, Isaiah is a major prophet. Amos is a minor prophet. Why is that? Well, primarily because if you read the book of Isaiah, you'll figure it out real quick. There's a lot going on in Isaiah. I mean, there's a number of chapters, a lot of writing going on there, and a lot of prophecies. Amos, he, on the other hand, is a little bit less uh, going on here as far as uh, the amount of writing. So we just often, uh, at least Bible college people, have said, well, that's a major prophet, that's a minor prophet. And I don't know, I mean, I think that if God used you like that, I think you're kind of major either way, if you ask me. But nonetheless, uh, you know, that's what the MSU has taught us, the Mystical Scholars Union. So anyway, you say, why is it called the Mystical Scholars Union? Because they give you all these terms like soteriology. What in the world is that supposed to mean? I mean, who cares, right? And we'll just uh, talk about the Savior, you know? Why don't we just do that instead, you know? And soteriology? Well, that's the mystical scholars union. All right, but anyway, Amos chapter 7. Let's begin in verse 10. <clears throat> You ever go to a doctor and the doctors use those big words and you say, Doc, can you give it to me in just layman's language? You just give it to me straight, Doc, right? Well, they get, you know, you're paying a doctor a lot of money. He wants you to think he's smart. Well, see, preachers sometimes want you to think they're smart. See, you go to Bible college, you got to learn all those stuff. You pay all that money to go to school, you better make sure that you're learning something. So they try to make you believe you learned something, see? Then we try to make you believe we know something. Amos chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel, and is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore, hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, Prophesy not against Israel. Drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be a hearted in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by the line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, 
and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. Now, there's a lot going on here in this passage too, right? But the bottom line is, is that Amos is a prophet. And as a prophet, he is proclaiming a prophecy. He is saying to this king, he's saying, listen, I want you to understand that the Lord is fed up with all the sin. The Lord is fed up with all the pollution in your environment. And we're not talking about the oceans and we're not talking about the, 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 the uh, rivers and we're not talking about the air. We're talking about a moral pollution. We're talking about the fact that they have allowed their lives to go deep into sin. They have rejected the authority of God and they have polluted themselves with evil. Can I tell you, and I'm just going to say this, you can believe whatever you want about global warming and about our environment and all of that, but there is not one pollution in this world any worse than evil. And we need to deal with evil before we deal with all the rest of this mess. And if we would get that taken care of, all the rest of it would fall into place. And you say, how can you even say that? I'll say it because in Matthew 12, the Bible says, And seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let me tell you something. Every plight and every problem in America and around the world is a direct result of sin. And if we would deal with sin, the rest of it would fall into place. But the world don't want to deal with sin. They want to deal with problems and simply symptoms. And it's never going to resolve the problem, in the, the real root issue. Amos is saying, listen, you can go ahead and tell me to leave. You can tell me to get out of Dodge. You can tell me to leave the city or whatever you like. But the fact is, I am a prophet of God. I am not the son of a prophet. I am not from the lineage of a prophet. I was called of God. And his point being is, <laughs> I was from the city named Tekoa. Man, let me tell you something. My daddy wasn't no prophet. I'm out there simply a herdsman taking care of some, uh, uh, the sheep, and I'm a farmer of sycamore fruit. Man, let me tell you something. I got a message because God gave it to me. I'm not doing this because it's just the family business. So don't think for a minute that I'm prophesying against you because somebody told me what to say. God told me what to say. This guy, Amos, he was, he was a nobody. I mean, really, when it's all said and done, he was from the city of Tekoa. It's located about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. It puts Bethlehem about halfway between Tekoa and Jerusalem there. And, and, and Amos was a shepherd and a farmer of sycamore fruit. And, you know, that sycamore fruit was... Like a fig, if you will. It's like kind of those figs that we read about in the Bible. It was commonly eaten by poor people. He wasn't rich. He wasn't really of any stature. He was really a nobody. He, as I said, didn't come from some lineage. He simply was just a normal Joe. He was just a common guy. And God called him. And again, he directed most of his prophecies toward Israel. And we know that Israel never really had any good kings at all. We know that their plight wasn't very good. They started off bad with Jeroboam and went right off the deep end early on into idolatry. 19 kings later and 19 wicked ones, they find themselves ultimately in Assyrian captivity in 721 B.C. 
Exactly what Amos said would happen, happened. Why? Because it wasn't his message, it was God's message. Now, again, turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians one twenty-six, and I'm going to focus a little bit again on a topic that I've touched on before recently, and I am just uh, feel compelled to emphasize the thought. Notice in 1 Corinthians one twenty-six through 30, I love this particular passage. It always offers me hope. The Bible says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Well, I can tell you this much. Amos was none of those things. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised. God hath chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Man, Amos didn't have any credentials, so to speak. He didn't graduate from the best Bible college in town. He wasn't uh, walking around with some kind of robe that said that he was special or unique in any way. He was just a herdsman, called of God, just trying to scratch out a living. And God said, it's time to do my work and my bidding. And he obeyed. It's interesting when we look throughout the scriptures, God didn't use Moses as a prince in Egypt. Instead, he waited till he was a nobody on the backside of a desert. Jesus didn't come a king, no. He was born in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. God didn't anoint Eliab, who by all appearance should have been the next king of Israel. Instead, he chose David, who was found keeping watch over his father's sheep. He didn't call the educated. He didn't call the financially set or stable. He didn't necessarily call the social elite. He contacted and reached out to and called common fishermen. Now, what did they all have in common? What did Amos and other prophets that were Basically, just normal men, just common folk. What kind of characteristics, what kind of qualities did they possess? I want to have a word of prayer, and then I want to just talk about some characteristics of the called. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time together. We are grateful, Father, for the fact that no matter who we are, where we're at, what statue, statue, uh, status of life we may be, you will use us if we just possess certain qualities and characteristics. Now, Father, help us, Lord, to be anxious to meet those qualifications, to be in a position where you will use us. Thank you that you use the least things. But Father, we in our hearts know that if it wasn't solely for your grace, we'd be nothing and we'd be nowhere. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> First of all, we think about what did they have in common? One, their attitude. Their attitude. 
You say, what kind of attitude? A humble attitude. A humble attitude. See, those that God uses are humble. Now, I'll be frank with you. I'm not really sure that we even know what that word means anymore. I don't know that in the world in which we live, in the culture in which we reside, I don't know that we really can wrap our minds around what true biblical humility is. Outside of an in-depth study of humility, outside of a real search and a desire to find the truth and understand what humility is, we will never understand it in the world in which we live. It's impossible. We can never forget, with that said, who our greatest example of humility was, and that's Jesus Christ. Take your Bible, look over the book of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 43. In Mark chapter 10, verse 43, we learn a few things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what it says beginning in verse 43. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Well, that's a lot different than the mentality of those that hold position and authority in our world today. I mean, isn't it really the, the, the goal and the objective to ultimately own things, to have things, to be in a position where others wait on you? I mean, isn't that really what our, uh, the reason why we get so upset and angry when we you know, go to the restaurant or to a counter or somehow we're involved in some kind of transaction and someone doesn't treat us quite like we think they should and we think to ourselves, hey, I'm paying you. You ought to treat me with respect. Isn't that really the problem? I mean, we expect somebody to serve us. It's the world we live in. We're taught that if you want to be some, see, how could you disrespect me that way? I'm paying, oh, the, the, the waiter, the waitress didn't come over here and fill my drink well, as soon as it was empty. I'm to be served. Why? Because you think you're somebody. I'm going to tell you what, God uses the humble. Now, I'm not saying that if you're a waiter or waitress or something that you ought to be negligent of your responsibility and work ethic. No, not at all. You ought to be the best. Man, you ought to be waiting on people hand and foot. But then again, whether or not that's your job, we as believers ought to be waiting hand and foot on others. He goes on. This is interesting because... This all sets some things up. I mean, you got John and you've got the disciples and they want to be top dog. They want to be, you know, at the right hand of Jesus. And he says, oh, whoa, 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 you guys are getting it all wrong. I want you to understand it's not about a position of elevation. It's about a position of submission. And he ultimately uses Jesus. Jesus himself reminds them for the son of man came not to be ministered unto, verse 45, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I mean, a picture that we have of Jesus Christ is at that last supper, if you will, washing the feet of the disciples. And I'm going to tell you something. 
I'll do a lot of things for you, but if you come and say, wash my feet, friend, forget it. Now, if that was one of those things we had to do around here at Community Baptist is wash each other's feet, I'd find a new religion. I'd find one with Christ at the center, but I wouldn't be here at no foot washing church. I can't stand them little hairs that stick off them nubs. I can't go with that stuff. That don't do me any good. And I see them crooked toes sometimes. Some of you wearing those, those things out there, toes sticking out, looking all weird and everything. No way. I don't want nothing to do with that. Toe jam in between them things and everything else. Forget it. But let me tell you something. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, here he is washing the feet of the disciples. And again, culturally speaking, in that day, that was nothing new. They would wash, they had to wash their feet. They'd come in out of a dusty road or rust, dusty trail and they'd go into a house. They'd wash their feet. As a matter of fact, when Jesus talked to the disciples, he eventually told them that they need to wash their feet. And, Je- and, and, and uh, Peter said, oh no, I'll wash my whole body, Lord. I want to be clean. So it was cultural in that day. It's how they functioned and operated. They didn't have Nikes, and they didn't have the nice shoes we have covering our feet and keeping them from getting dirty all the time. I didn't say anything about smelly, but dirty. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. That's an amazing thing. He came to earth. He didn't come here so that his creation could fall before him and and be and serve him. That's not why he came. He came to serve them. That's a, that is beyond the scope of comprehension to me to some degree. That God, the creator of the universe and creator of all mankind, literally came to earth to serve me. Boy, did he ever. He died on Calvary and he shed his precious, perfect blood. He suffered the taunting and the mocking and the maligning of a world that hated him, even though he created them. But he served them. Humility. Humility. D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was one of the most famous evangelists in the world. He lived uh, in the 1800s, and it was toward the turn of the century that he proclaimed the message so wonderfully in the late 1800s. People came literally from around the world to attend his Bible conferences in Northfield, Massachusetts. For one, uh, one year, uh, this very large group of pastors from Europe were among the attendees. They were given rooms in the dormitory of the Bible school, and it was custom in Europe, uh, customary in Europe that men put their shoes outside their doors of their rooms and at night in the evening there or later at night, they, they would expect them to be cleaned and polished by servants so that by the next day in the morning, they were prepared, ready to go. They looked their best. But this was America. And there were no servants in American dorms. But as Moody walked through those hallways, praying for the guests that had arrived at the conference. He saw the shoes and he realized what had happened. He mentioned the problem to a few of his students, but none of them seemed to be that concerned, nor did they offer him any help. Without another word, the great evangelist gathered up the shoes and he took them back to his own room where he began to clean and polish every pair. 
Moody didn't tell anybody what he had done, but it just so happened that a friend of his had stopped by the room and interrupted him in the middle of the shining of the shoes, and he said, I'll give you a hand, Mr. Moody. I'll be glad to do that, and so the two of them finished up those shoes, and later the story was leaked to the press, if you know what I mean. Despite the praise, despite all the fame that D.L. Moody would receive as a result of God's blessing on his life and ministry, Moody remained a humble man. A man like D.L. Moody, shining everyone's shoes and not expecting somebody to pat him on the back either. Can you imagine being one of Moody's students? It's pretty sad today when the student thinks that they're bigger and better than the teacher. Maybe the blessing on his life, just maybe. Maybe the blessing on D.L. Moody's life and ministry was a result of a humble spirit. We fight, we claw to be served. We want to be elevated. We want to be recognized. But the Bible says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. In 1 Peter 5, 5, the Bible says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. and Be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Maybe, just maybe, D.L. Moody's success might have been somewhat linked to his attitude of humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, unto the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. 1 Peter 5, 6. But we don't want exalted in due time. We want exalted in our time. There's never been a church split in the history of America or around the world that pride wasn't at the root of it. There's never been a divorce amongst couples that pride wasn't at the root of it. See, Satan is the father of all this mess. And what was it that was his downfall? Pride. If I would go around the room and I would ask you, define pride, we'd get all kinds of answers. But I think we know enough about pride and humility to know at least enough difference to make a difference. How did they, what did they have in common? What kind of characteristics do the called possess? Well, first, their attitude, humble. Number two, their action. Their actions, obedient. You'll look hard and you'll look long to find a man or a woman who God will use that isn't obedient. The idea that you can have your own will and go your own direction, do your own thing, and still somehow be used of God in a mighty way, my friend, that is, that's just not reality. Now, you, you may serve God on your terms, and 
you may serve God to a degree, but it's, it's not what God intends. Roger Stahlbuck, and I've, I've told you this before, you might remember it, but he led the Dallas Cowboys to the Super Bowl victory in 1971, and he admitted that his position as a quarterback was at times frustrating for him because he didn't call his own signals. That, that bothered him, that he wasn't given the authority to call his own signals. I mean, he was the quarterback on a Super Bowl winning team. Coach Landry sent in every single play. I mean, he told Roger when to pass and when to run. And he did say, only in an emergency, only in an emergency, Roger, can you change the play. But don't you be changing the play just because that's what you want to do. Even though Roger considered Coach Landry to have a, I mean, just a genius mind, to be a genius when it came to football, Pride said that he should be able to run his own team. And you know, Rogers had a decision to make. Roger Stallback had a decision to make. Would he allow Pride to rule his life and ignore his coach? Which would ultimately give him bragging rights and say, I'm the one who calls the plays and look at me. Or would he listen to the coach and do what he wanted? Stallback later said, I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. One of the things I believe that, again, for me, that is difficult as I watch sports today is that there's such an individualistic type mentality. It's always about me getting mine. Roger Stallback understood if he would obey his coach and that he would just be a team player, then the best result would come. Can I tell you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I can fall into the trap of sometimes believing we know best. And I mean, for us to deny that is to simply be ignorant of who and what we really are, to bury our head in the sand. We are prone to do that. We are prone to look at God in heaven and say, I can do this without you. But it is the obedient man or woman that God will use. Characteristics of the called. I mean, we noted right off the bat their attitude, humility, but their actions, obedience. The Bible says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And as we remember the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, we're going to love him more and more, and that love will move us to greater obedience. It's when we forget the sacrifice, when we forget the price that was paid, when we start to neglect to remember where we were and who we were without him. It's interesting to note that obedience will set us apart as well. It sets us apart in the eyes of God, but it also sets us apart in the eyes of the world. A father and a son, he had arrived in a small western town. They were looking for an uncle whom they'd never seen even. 
Suddenly the father said, hey, there he is, walking away. That guy walking away from us right now. There goes my uncle. His son said, how do you know when you, you've never even seen him before? Son, I know him because he walks exactly like my father. He walks exactly like my father. You know, if we walk in the Spirit and if we obey the Word of God, the world will know us by our walk too. The Bible says that we're to be conformed to the image of His Son. Do you walk like Him? Do you talk like Him? Do you think like Him? Those are sobering questions and thoughts, are they not? Characteristics of the call. Their attitude. Humility. Their actions. Obedience. Number three, their allegiance. Turn to Acts chapter 5, please. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We know that these particular apostles have been preaching the word of God. I mean, to tell you, they had decided to elevate and to magnify and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. They were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. It was a resurrected Christ on their lips. Boy, I'll tell you, the authorities weren't real pleased, nor were they happy with that. Throw them in jail, persecute them, punish them. Whatever it took, but silence them at all cost. Standing before these authorities, these men of God stood and Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now I think it's interesting to note that A man like, I want to make sure I get the right name here, Daniel. A man like Daniel is told that he cannot pray. That a decree had been signed and that he could only ask petitions of the king. The Bible tells us that Daniel bowed and prayed anyway, like he had aforetime. You know what I think is interesting? He didn't decide to pray after the king had signed. He didn't pray after the decree was made. No, he had already been praying. He was just following through with what he had done all along. You know, there's always those people who like to make a point out of something. You know, somebody says something and all of a sudden they're going to take a stand because they're just rebels at heart and they just want to cause trouble. But the true believer is already faithful and just continues in faithfulness. 
See, these disciples and these apostles hadn't just begun preaching the gospel because they were told they couldn't. They were preaching the gospel because they'd been given a command to preach by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when someone said, you can't, they said, what we have been, and we will continue to do so. Because we're not going to obey man. We're going to obey God. There are Christians even, if you tell them the sky is blue, they'll say it's red. Why? I don't know. But the true believer is a believer that is already walking and already talking and already obeying the Lord. And then when it comes time to choose a side, they don't have to really choose a side. They've already made the choice. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, he met with a group of ministers for a prayer breakfast. And one of the ministers said, Mr. President, let us pray that God is on our side. Lincoln's response showed a tremendous amount of insight and biblical understanding. He said, no, gentlemen, let us pray that we are on God's side. Allegiance. I wonder... Are you on God's side? I'll tell you, uh, the characteristics of the called, pretty simple. The attitude is humility. The action is obedience. The allegiance is God, not man. You want God to use you, then you set those things in priority. You set those straight in your life. Finally, number four, their approach. Hard-working, hard-working. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there's no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. You know, we are quick to say things today like, work smart, not hard. And, and we have tailor-made a culture of comfort adopting that particular phrase. I mean, everything that you see on the television that they're trying to sell you is supposed to make life easier, make life better, give you more time to relax and take it easy. But you know, God's really, can I say that God can use a lot of people, but he can't use someone that's lazy or wants to get out of work. If that's you, you'll never do nothing really for God. Oh, you'll come to church maybe. Because there's some things you're not lazy at. You know what I mean? You're, you're really disciplined at some things. Things that matter to you. But God wants you to be disciplined in areas that he wants you to be disciplined at. Oh, you're not lazy to get up and go to work. You're just lazy to read his word. You're not lazy to lack making dinner. You just are too lazy to pray. 
Laziness shows up in all kinds of areas of our life if we're not careful. I'm not a lazy person. I get up and go to work every day. And while I'm there, I work hard. So how hard do you work on your marriage when you go home? Oh, you work hard for the boss, but you don't work hard for your marriage. God wants just hard workers, pure and simple. William Sidney Porter, he's better known by his pen name, O. Henry. Now, there was a good candy bar, by the way. How many of you ever, how many of you have ever eaten an O. Henry bar? Now you're talking. Remember, was that Hank Aaron? Had the home run king, right? And then they came out with the O. Henry bar. Man, that was a great day. That thing was good. You know, in those days, that candy bar was that long. And now it's like that if you can find one. It's the fun size. I never find anything fun about a small candy bar. Never. But anyway, William Sidney Porter, he went by his, his pen name, O. Henry, he became one of the most popular authors in America at the turn of the last century. He wrote for, you know, a number of years. But his literary career really took off from a most often, a most unlikely place, really. Prison. That's when it really took off, while he was in prison. We know a few writers like that in the Bible, don't we? Porter had been convicted of embezzlement from a bank where he had worked in Texas. There's some evidence that said that, well, he was merely careless. He really wasn't intending to do what he did. But nonetheless, the funds were lost. He was blamed, and he ended up in prison. He was sentenced to five years, as a matter of fact. While he was there, he wrote and published some of his best-known stories. It's said that once he attempted to get a royalty check from a New York publisher without success. He went to the office of that particular publisher and he tried to collect in person only to be told that the person who signed the checks was not available because he had sprained his ankle. Oh, Henry, he, he had a personality and he was kind of witty and quick and he said, my dear sir, does he sign with his feet? <laughs> You know, it's funny that when we're trying to avoid doing something that we don't want to really do, almost any excuse is going to be sufficient, isn't it? We find some reason to have an excuse. I mean, rather than looking for reasons to avoid the tasks that are set before us, we ought to be faithful and diligent about the work that God's given us. John, should I say Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 9, verse 4, he said, I must do the works of him that sent me while it is day. For the night cometh when no man can work. You know, there's only so much time to accomplish the work and will of God in our life. I'm sad to say that when I arrive at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm sure there's going to be times as I look back in my life that I'm going to regret wasted time. But can I say this, though, in light of that? That shouldn't bring you any comfort at all in your life. You shouldn't say, well, huh, well, the pastor, he can look back and see that he wasted time too, so me wasting time, that's, <laughs> if he can waste time, I can. 
You shouldn't find any comfort in that. We ought to look at our lives and begin to evaluate and say, Lord, am I wasting my life? Am I wasting my time? Am I being lazy in some areas of my Christian walk and faith? Should I be doing more to learn about you and to know you better? Am I, should I be doing more to grow and glean from the Word of God? Characteristics of the called. Their attitude, humble. Their actions, obedient. Their allegiance, God, not man. Their approach, hardworking. Say, I want to be used of the Lord, preacher. I know Amos wasn't a whole lot of anything, but honestly, preacher, I don't see myself much better, if any better. I'll tell you, the truth is, I'm just a normal person. I have not got anything great to offer God. Guess what? You're you're really on your way to being used if you'll just demonstrate the right characteristics. Oh, he wants to call you to do something wonderful. And so many of you are already involved in ministry. And that's to be commended. But how much more could God use you? How much more do you long to be used? Characteristics of the called. Will you demonstrate those characteristics? Because if you will, I'll guarantee you this. He'll call you. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for the privilege that we have to gather today to be a part of this service. Thank you for just the simplicity of your word. And we thank you, Father, for the testimony of men and women in the Bible and the testimony of men and women through history. Or like Amos, we don't necessarily have a lot of ability or Upbringing. Maybe we haven't had any real opportunity to, I mean, no silver spoons in our mouths, that's for sure. And all we want to do is just honor you and please you. May we demonstrate the characteristics of the called. We know that you are looking to use us. May we have a longing to be used, and may we put ourselves in a position to be used. Lord, be glorified in our lives, and use us like you used Amos, like you used Moses, like you used David, and like you used the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll thank you, we'll praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.